I'm Terry Chapman. I am an electrical engineer by profession. I work in the oil industry, and I am semi-retired, which just means that I don't work as hard as I used to. Uh, but uh, I still enjoy the engineering work that I do, so God has blessed me and allowed me in my consulting work to continue to do a little bit. But I'm always chuckling. I, I, haven't, I haven't spoken in here for a year. I went back and looked at my notes. I'm always chuckling because Cliff never seems to give me much advance notice, and it's getting to be less and less. He decides he can just wait until Saturday night, you know, and say, hey, Terry. You know, so anyway, you're going to get today... My, uh, our small group has been, has been working through Mark this year, and so we're going to go back and look at a very familiar story that you all have certainly known since childhood, the feeding of the 5,000, but we're going to look at it in a new and fresh way. Maybe it'll add something into uh, what we can take with us today into the world. But before we start on that, I've got a question for you. Anybody hear of a thing called the coronavirus? <laughs> Anybody paying attention to that, right? Do you ever... Do you ever have that thought of, Lord, how should I respond? How should I respond? How should I think about this issue? And there's other issues that come up, right? And we go, I struggle sometimes to think about how should I, how should I think about this? How should I respond? Well, I am not an originalist thinker like a Terry Fakes who can just sit down, you know, and synthesize all this. I listen to him and then I steal from him all the time. But <laughs> But I realized Dwight L. Moody was the same way. He stole all his stuff. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it, right? Uh, so, but, but I'm good at, uh, at, at thinking about what other people have written down. So I was looking, and I ran across a good article. Anybody uh, read anything through the Gospel uh, Christian Coalition group out of, uh, I think they're out of Louisville. But anyway, they write some really good stuff. And there was an article that I would really recommend to you. It was, it was uh, published on March 3rd this past week on Tuesday. It's called, Should Christians Be Anxious About the Coronavirus? by Todd Wagner. So I'm going to just give you a couple of things from it, maybe just to whet your appetite to go in and find this. It's on the web, easy enough to find. If you can't, email me and I'll send you the link. But I mean, it's, it's easy. Just look for, for uh, Gospel uh, Coalition, Todd Wagner, and the coronavirus. Um, so first off, should we be anxious about the coronavirus? How would you answer that question? No. No. Why is that? Why do we know that to be true without having to think about it? God says, don't be anxious about anything, right? Where does he say that? Philippians, very good, very good. See, those are the reasons we work on our scripture so that when we get to things like this, we go, no, no. If I'm anxious, is that biblical? Answer, no. When I get anxious at work, I have learned to set my stuff down, get up from my desk, walk out for five or ten minutes and go, Lord, this is not the way you want me to be. I know that's not the case. and I need to reset my thinking. I'm not thinking straight, Right. That's the way it is here. So um, I, the, this article has a quote by Corey Tenboom that I think is just fabulous. You know who she is. Uh, but she goes, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. I thought that exactly hits the nail on the head. And so, you know, it takes as much effort to worry as it does to pray. 
choose wisely. That's really what we're called to think about is to how to choose wisely. So we quoted the Philippians 4, 6, Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will, will worry about itself. Yeah, take care of itself. We'll worry about itself because there's plenty of worry for tomorrow, right? And so we're given scripture. Um, in fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, that's the ultimate, oh, death, where is your victory, oh, death, where is your sting, right? And we recognize that. That's, so if we recognize that, we then look, as Paul did in Philippians again, and he says, uh, for me to die or to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I don't have to worry about what's happening about me. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ignorant and I don't do anything. Uh, Proverbs 22.3, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, right? So we take refuge in doing intelligent stewardship issues like washing our hands and, you know, those kinds of things. We don't stick our hand in the, or stick our head in, you know, in the sand. We don't go into the basement and hide. We go out and say, Lord, I see this as an opportunity. If it weren't for Christians, the world would not have had help in a lot of previous major catastrophes. You can go back and read about, you know, and, and, and I looked at Martin Luther as an example. When he published his thesis, just weeks after that happened, guess what showed up on the doorstep of Wittenberg? The plague. And he said, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? And he talked to his congregations about it. He had many congregations, and he talked to them. But he said, in my case, I choose to step out and take care of that. Um, Spurgeon was in the middle of a huge cholera outbreak in England. And he said, I choose to step out into my congregation and help. If God chooses to take me home, so be it. If he doesn't, you know, I'm just saying we need to think through. And what really is um, important to me is to think through the 1 Peter 3.15. Be prepared to what? To give an answer for the... Hope that is within you. See, people, and we're going to talk about this today. That's why I brought this up. That's what brought this to mind. People in the world think that they need physical healing. That's what they are most worried about, right? I don't feel good. I got this going on. I got that going on. They need financial, whatever it is. But whatever it is, even if that healing comes, what are they eventually going to do? Die. They're going to eventually die still, right? Even Christ in all his miracles, we studied this, as we study this in Mark, we've come to realize how many people he healed, but they still all died. What he came to do, and in fact, I'll move over to this piece, but anyway, just a little piece on the corona. I think it fits with how we think about even the lesson today, but I would really encourage you to go read that article by Todd Wagner that's really well written and gives you some verses, so... Um, all right, so on to Mark, and again, we'll slip back into this idea of what we were just ending there on. Any questions on that, by the way? Any thoughts on that? No? Okay. That's a pretty straightforward, how should we be, you know? We don't get anxious. We don't hide. We step forward in boldness and, uh, and show the love of Christ, and we're really called to take the eye off ourself and put the eye on our neighbor. That's what we're called to do. 
So anyway, into Mark. So Mark is an interesting book. Mark was probably, uh, today it's, it's not one of the hugely studied books, but in its time, early in the church, it was the book. It was what everybody used for evangelism. Does anybody know why Mark was written? What was he doing? He was following. He was not one of the disciples. He was following Peter. And Peter was preaching these little vignettes, you know, telling what Christ did. That's what he was all about. He was trying to show people who Christ was because Peter was trying to say, Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm going to prove it to you. And we're going to talk a lot about miracles. So it's not a lot of stuff. I mean, when you look at Mark, it opens up with John the Baptist. And it gives a couple things about John the Baptist. Christ is baptized and boom, he's off and running and doing miracles. So we don't get a lot of background information. We get that through Luke. But in Mark, it's just boom, 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 boom. So it's not, it's not particularly well written as a piece of literature because it just reads story, 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 story. But in any case, Mark was written because all the people said to Peter, oh my gosh, you're telling us all these great stories going town to town, but we keep forgetting them. We want to know the details. So they begged Mark to write them down. And what do you think he did? He wrote them down, right? And he wrote them down in a way probably similar to, to how Peter was trying to preach them, trying to make sense of them. It's an interesting book in the fact that, again, the, we, when, when we write books today, you'll see, a, you'll see an opening. You'll see this, you know, develop the plot. It'll come to this big crescendo at the end and have a conclusion, right? That's not the way they wrote. They wrote with a thesis, and it says in the first Mark 1.1, you know, Jesus, well, I'm, gonna, I'm here to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And then it does that with all these miracles through to Mark 8, 9, and 10. And remember, it's in Mark 8 that Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, no man told you that. The Spirit showed you that. And so it crescendos to 8, and then the rest of the book is developing that theme again, showing what does that mean? What does that mean to the world, right? So it comes in, it comes into this point, and then it goes back out. That's different than the way we're used to reading stuff. So when you read Mark, you got to realize that the, the big part is right dead center. So we're in the middle of the first part when he's just doing miracle, 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 miracle. And the question is that I open with you there, why did he do the miracles? Why did Jesus do all these miracles? Did he come... To heal all the people. What was his ministry? Somebody, open your books to Mark or, uh, so that we've got Mark in front of us because we're going to look at just a, few, a couple things, but it'll all be from Mark. Somebody can read to us real quick Mark 1.15. This is what, why Jesus came. By the way, why did, before we read that, why did John come? What was John's message? He said, repent. Change your thinking, change the direction, change your hard-heartedness, and repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is nearer at hand, right? Jesus, in 115, what's he say? This is his ministry. What's that? Read it. Read it out loud. What's that sound like? Same, same exact thing. 
John prepared the way with that message. Jesus gave the same message. But the people didn't understand the message real well. The people thought they needed what? Physical healing. They needed demons to be, you know, removed. They needed, well, they didn't realize that, you know, he, he took some dead people and made them alive. They were, that was even past their even wishing or thinking about. But a lot of their sickness, they came. How many, how many people did Jesus heal? You know, I, I hadn't thought about that until I studied this. How many is a lot? More than 100? More than, yeah, all of them. More than 1,000? How many people would he have had? Remember where he's doing this, you know, just as a, a little background. I don't have my map. I'm not Terry Fakes, but look up here. You're looking at the map, so I'm standing behind the map. The uh, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, right, is how you're looking at it. And when you look at it that way, well, you're looking at it from this direction, Jerusalem's down here by the Dead Sea. That's the main area. That's the, that's the Oklahoma City, right? Or that's the, you know, of the, of the area. When you come up the Jordan River into the Sea of Galilee, that's nah, not even Tulsa, you know? It's even less than that. But, but you've, got, you've got up on the corner, if you're looking at it this way, you've got Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum starts with cap, C-A-P. It's the cap piece sitting on top of the Sea of Galilee. And all down the western side is all of Galilee, all controlled by one of King Herod who died when Jesus was two. Remember that? He had a bunch of sons and daughters, though, and so they're now in control. And one of the sons is running this area. And you come up around Galilee, and you come over to this area, and this is called the Decapolis. It's a Greek area. It's Gentile. It's not Jewish. But you see some of Mark occurring over there. Again, just to give you some background to remember where all this is occurring, and Jesus came and did all the miracles with the idea that he's saying to the people, by the way, a bunch of messiahs were there at the same time. They were all saying, I'm the Christ. You know, I'm, I'm it. But they were thinking they were trying to throw off what? Roman rule. So they'd get a bunch of big guys around them, and they'd try to do military, and the Romans would just poo-poo them, you know, and go, ah, we can take care of that. But Jesus comes along. And he starts casting out demons. He starts bringing sight to men who had been blind since. He starts taking a limb that everybody can see is not good, grabs it, and is suddenly healed. And they're going, man, that is real power. We have never seen anything like this before. So they're scared to death of him. In fact, by this point, early in Mark, the Herodians, which are kind of the secular, they're not kind of, they are the secular side of the Jewish society. The Herodians would have, been, would have been the business people that were thinking just love of money, right? That's what they loved. And then you had the Pharisees, and they were all about righteousness, you know, and legalism. And those two groups hated each other. They'd already gotten together and said, how can we get rid of this Jesus? That's how big a deal this was. The two groups that did not like each other at all were plotting together against Jesus. So in the middle of all that, Jesus says, you know, if I can do this, if I can cast out demons, if I can heal the sick, if I can, all of this, if I can do that, maybe you'll believe the rest of my message. Because even the disciples, we're going to see in this story, didn't get it. And they were with him. 
And we sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll say to myself, ooh, I wish I'd have been there. wish I'd have been one. I wish I could have spent time with Jesus. And I'm thinking, as I've gotten to know better about the disciples, I'm going, no, I'd have been just like them. I'm so glad I was not there and embarrassed myself, you know. <laughs> I embarrassed myself enough privately. I don't need to do it in front of Jesus uh, in person. Uh, he knows what I'm doing now. But in any case... I lost my train of thought. Let's see, what was I talking about? I get off on that sometimes. Um, oh, he says, if, if you think or you realize I can do all this, maybe you'll believe the rest of my message. There's a quote by uh, Robin Z uh, Zacharias that I've heard quoted before. I've used it now several times because I really like it. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. See, we didn't recognize, they didn't recognize their condition. They were already dead. They didn't know it. They thought they were alive and just needed to be made better, right? Be made well. But they were still going to die, and then they didn't recognize spiritual death. I mean, we listened uh, last week to, uh, to Andy when he spoke, uh, was it last week when he spoke about... Uh, um, I just, uh, not Zacchaeus, uh, who's, the, who's the Pharisee that came to him and said, you must be born again? Nicodemus, there you go, couldn't think of it. Nicodemus, same idea, Nicodemus, he goes, Nicodemus, are you so clueless that you don't even know? You're one of the teachers and you don't get it yet. The disciples didn't get it. That's, I'm just giving you, this is the background, this is what's going on in Mark. Lots of, lots of miracle, 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 and the people still don't see it. So the condition of the disciples. Well, let's look at Mark 6. I need a good reader. I'm going to, wife, are you still a good reader today? Yeah, she can do a good read for me. Read for me uh, uh, 30 through 32, the first three verses there. Okay, so here's the situation. Look up here again. I got the Sea of Galilee. I got the Jordan River, got the Dead Sea. So Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is up here. Uh, Bethsaida is up a little further north of that. And there's some areas down here just below Capernaum. And that's where they are, just below Capernaum. They've been doing a lot of ministry. And what's their condition? They are really tired. And Jesus recognizes that and says... Get in a boat, and we're going to cut across the corner over to Bethsaida. Not clear across, but just the corner, probably a half a mile or so, just to get away from everybody. But, the, I mean, Sea of Galilee is not very big. It's only, at its widest, it's only five miles across. You can look across the Sea of Galilee and see across at all times unless it's in clear weather. Uh, especially if you're on the uh, eastern side, on the Golan Heights, you can look down on the, uh, on the uh, western side. But in any case, they go to do that. And all the people that they've been healing, by the way, we ask how many. It was thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands. I never thought about how many people were healed that as the disciples post-resurrection came back and started to speak, they would have gone. Do you remember? I mean, they either were healed or they knew somebody healed in their household, I'm sure, that all the people involved. It's one of the reasons the church probably exploded. Jesus had seeded all of this good work. 
And everybody goes, now that we understand what's going on here, we're all in. We saw the power. We didn't see it when he was here. We didn't understand it until post-resurrection, but now we do. My, my own testimony is kind of the same way. In my 20s, I came to Christ, and I didn't understand what had happened to me at all. I thought, well, if I needed to accept Jesus in today, I need to do it for at least the next year daily because I am really messed up, you know. And, and it took me a while until post-resurrection in my own life, I began to see what Jesus was all about, and I began to understand what had happened in my own life. But the people see all of that, and they go, we want more. And they see Jesus, and they go, well, he's only, they're only going to be half a mile, mile away. And they start running around the edge of the lake. And they've gotten away to a place that's deserted, and all the people suddenly start pouring in again, right? And what's the condition of the disciples? They are tired, and they are hungry. You guys know what this is all about, right? And I don't know, have you ever... Uh, have you ever really, really, really been tired and hungry? Where, in fact, just so tired you're not even hungry anymore, and you just go, I just want to get horizontal. What is the minimum amount that I can do to get horizontal, right? I had this experience, the one that I remember so well, raising children. The uh, twins are probably two, two, three, I don't know. Brian's probably five, six, seven, somewhere there. And I've got the flu. Cindy doesn't feel well. We're both laying in bed, and I'm thinking I'm dying. And, and the twins, I don't know, they're a little sick. I don't remember. I mean, it was, I really don't remember. But all I know is the twins start to cry in the other room. And I just thought, I can't even begin to deal with this. Cindy, you got to go deal with it. you got to be less dying than I am, right? <laughs> and she gets up, and she walks out. And the next thing I hear is, Brian's sick too. That's another room that she can't deal with, right? And I'm thinking, I've got to get up. And I go walking in, and I thought, well, how bad can it be? I'm thinking the whole way. What's the minimum amount that I can do to get a hold of Brian, get him calmed down, and get back down, laid down? That's all I'm thinking about. I go in, Brian's standing on his bed, confused in the dark, 3 a.m., looking at the wall, throwing up on it. I'm thinking, minimum, Terry, minimum, what's the minimum you can get by with? It was, but I really related to the, I think the disciples are this way. Now, why are they so tired? If you back up just a little bit of Mark, what have they just done? They've just had some on-the-job training. God, or Jesus has sent them out two by two and said, I want you to go out. I want you to do what I've been doing, what you've been seeing modeling. And they've been out, and it says they've been healing people, and they've been casting out, and they've been, in fact, it says they've been anointing too, which Jesus hadn't done, but they were anointing. Uh, that's the first time we hear of anointing going on. But in any case, they're out working, and they come back, and they are tired. And you see a little debrief on the front end of this story when they sit down to talk about it, and they really don't talk about it much. It's just Jesus sees them and recognizes they're tired. Where in, the, where in Scripture did we see somebody else get really tired and God took care of them? Who, yeah, who was it? Elijah comes to mind, right? Elijah back in 1 Kings. And he's just done Mount Carmel. And Is it Mount Carmel? Is that what's happened? Yeah, he's just done Mount Carmel, and he's got Jezebel going to get after him. And he goes out in the desert, and he, he just, he's so tired. What's he say to God? 
I, I'm, I just want to die. I'm done. My ministry's over. And he's just saying, I just want to lay down, right? God lets him lay down. God doesn't argue with him. Let's him sleep, and he gets up, and what's immediately happens? An yeah, the angel feeds him, <laughs> you know? It's the same kind of idea. God knows. Now, what's interesting to me is the next piece here in verse 32. Jesus knew they needed rest, but in uh, 33 and 34, Jesus did not rest. Jesus didn't rest. He said, what's it tell us there? He sees the condition of the people, and he has compassion on them, right? And he goes, I got more ministry to do. Now, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He would have known tiredness. But it is so comforting to, to go back, and I wrote down here for your for, to, uh, reflection later this week, this Psalm 121.4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, right? God's never asleep. He's always ready. He's always waiting for us, whatever, whatever our need is. So that's the condition. I just want you to see that they are really tired. That's all they're thinking. In fact, I'm not sure. Maybe they want something to eat. I've always thought maybe this, these few loaves of bread that they had, you know, that they find, maybe they had them already, and they were thinking that was for them. That's what they were going to eat. I, there's nothing to absolutely imply that, but... Um, that, that certainly has been on my mind in this. So we read then, Cindy, read 35 through 38. This is the problem that they run across. So what's the problem? They're really tired. They're really tired. Jesus has sent them around the edge to get away from everybody, to have some rest. And they're thinking in their minds, I thought, we were going to get away from everyone. Yeah, I thought we were going to get away from everyone. We have enough for us here that we can rest and get refreshed. But how about everyone else, right? It's just everyone. It's all these people that have shown up. Some people might say, well, the disciples were being ever so practical in bringing this to Jesus' mind. I don't think so. Because I put myself in their their shoes, when you're really tired, what are you thinking? It's all about me, right? I think they're in an all about me stage. And I think they're just being selfish, magnified by being so tired. They're just thinking, we don't have any food. What do they want the solution to be? What do you think they want the solution to be? Jesus, tell everybody to go away, right? What's interesting is Jesus doesn't argue with them. He doesn't even discuss it. What's he telling the solution is going to be? What's it say? You feed them. You want me to do what? Can you see this? I mean, I can see this going on. Anybody remember? My son reminded me of this this morning. Anybody remember the, the movie The Rock? When, uh, what, who was the character? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage is sitting there early on, and it teaching him if he gets exposed to, to VX, you know, what he has to do. He has to drive the needle. And he, and he goes, you want me to do what? <laughs> you know, it's the same kind of idea here. So they're going, we've got 5,000 men here. 
the text says 5,000 men, or it says 5,000, which we know would be men the way the story would be told, which means they got to have at least 10,000 people, maybe more, with the women and the children and the people that were around to support to all of this. And so they got 10,000 people, and they say, there is no way. Takes way too much wages. And they're trying to give an excuse, or they're trying to give an argument to Jesus where he'll come to the same conclusion they are, which is, just tell the people to go away. Jesus instead ignores it. Have you ever noticed how Jesus ignores sometimes our complaints and comes to the heart of the matter instead of arguing with us on a level that doesn't do any bit of good? He does that to me all the time. Especially when I get into conflict and I go away and I go, Jesus, it wasn't fair. And he goes, I go, you need to change that person. You need to do. And he goes, I'm here to change you, not change the other person. Yeah, right. Okay, I know, I know. I've even gotten good at turning over, and I look at him now, and I don't even argue. I said, I know it's all about me. I got to get myself changed. So it's getting better. Anyway, they're, they're needing to be fed, and Jesus simply says, tell me what you got. And what do they answer? So, Cindy, go ahead. Let's look at the solution. By the way, I've quoted you there, Ephesians 3.20. Now, to him who is able to do more abundantly then uh, we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. We got lots of going on if we remember. This is the challenge for us is to always have scripture at our fingertips. The few key scriptures that are just principal to us that when we get into a really hard situation, we go to Ephesians and we go, oh, now to he who can do abundantly more than all we ask, right? Oh yeah, okay, that's the guy I'm working with i got to remember that, just like they needed to, and they weren't, and they didn't, and it's okay. It just takes experience. That's how our faith is built up. But, Cindy, go ahead and read 39 to 44, the solution. So, he says, how many you got? What do they say? We got five loaves. Now, I want you to see what, the way I think this ought to be read. You know, dramatic reading is important, right? I think it's the disciples going looking at them, because all they're thinking is, I want to get horizontal, right? I'm tired. And they go, sarcastically, we got five loaves. Pause. Oh, and by the way, two fish, as if that would matter, right? I think that's the way it was presented. I think they would have looked and said, there's no possible way. Jesus, again, ignores their comments and simply takes them. And what does he do? models to them the way we ought to do ministry. Whatever we've been given, whatever's entrusted to us in our stewardship responsibility, simply hold it up and say, Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. Not sure what you're going to do here yet. I don't know that 5,000 are going to be fed, but Lord, I still thank you. Now, I have read some feeding of the 5,000 modern day stories where People have had people over, and suddenly another 50, 60, 70 people show up that they don't have food for, and their food lasts through the whole night, and they don't know why. They cannot explain it short of a miracle later. I've read enough of those to realize God's still in the miracle doing business when we need it, right? I'm just saying Jesus is modeling to us the way we ought to be as stewards in this story, right? That's for us directly. And then he simply hands them out to them, and they, they, they obviously have got, they must have 12 baskets, you know, it's 12 disciples. And somebody asked me, you know, how, did the, how do you think Jesus multiplied it? Well, have you ever, 
I mean, when, when a basket gets passed in church, do you ever pay much attention to it? We never really know what's in there, right? I can just see that the baskets get started and they just get passed. And people take some food out and it gets passed and people take some food out. And they don't ever pay attention, the crowds. He set them down in groups of 50 and 100. Again, practical ministry application. How should we deal with large groups of people? But he feeds them all and they're all fed. And you know what? The story doesn't make a big deal of the miracle. The story is only a miracle to us because we got 2020 hindsight. We can see in the rearview mirror. But there, as crowds, they watch, they see him bless. Do they have any idea how much food is there? They really don't. The disciples do, but the crowd doesn't. And so when they feed the crowd, I'm not sure the crowd at that point knew what was going on. Now, that word would have gotten quickly around. Do you know how much food we really had? I think the crowd would have finally realized later and started to reflect. And I think, I only think that because, again, there's not a big deal made about the miracle. But in the telling of the story, it was very important to the Israelites. And it's why Peter would have told this story over and over and over. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But at the time, I don't think so. So I'm not even sure because of the next piece how much the disciples really understood of what just went on. I'm not sure they did either because of what happens in the, in, just after this story. So um, Jesus, in, in, the, in your notes there, Jesus is always teaching. He's always teaching. Everything he does in my life, I look back and I realize he's teaching me. He's teaching me to take the eyes off of myself and put it on others and then shows me how to be a help to that other person, right? That's how he's teaching, and he's always teaching and modeling. Um, Jesus, knowing God's will, simply gives thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, what's it say? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all things, give thanks. So when somebody next asks you, I don't know what the will of God is in my life, take them to this verse. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all things, give thanks. That's God's will, right? That's pretty specific. Now, again, they're looking in something very specific in their life. They're worried about something. It's like, I need to be fed. I need to be fed. I need to be rested. You know, that person that you're working with or whatever, they got some specific need. But you need to remember that the front end is rejoice always, pray without ceasing, right? That's always the front end of needs being met. Um, so Jesus is modeling that, and it is God who always provides the, the increase, the increase. I give you another verse there, Matthew uh, 19, 26. Jesus looked at them, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, when Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He recognized exactly the same thing. So, and, and I also give us Philippians 4, 6, and 7. By the way, the reason I write those extra verses down, my hope is that you won't believe everything I'm telling you here today, that you'll take this lesson and as part of your quiet time this week, reflect back on it yourself and say, God, what would you have me to think about 
in this lesson. And these verses help you just focus in on some of the finer points of maybe what God's going to try to tell you. But Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. We quoted that earlier on the coronavirus. That was the connection that I saw here. They were anxious about what? What were the disciples anxious about? How are we going to feed them and how we, or actually, how are we going to feed us now that we got these 10,000 to feed and how are we going to get some rest here? And uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, right? That's what he's trying to show us. Well, let's look at a couple of the applications that come out of here. Again, this is a story that you had if you grew up in church. You know, I had this flannel boarded to me as a child. I just remember the feeding of the 5,000. It was always in Bible, vacation Bible school. We were taught about the feeding of the 5,000, but I don't think we were really taught the deep spiritual pieces that God's really trying to show here. So first application, do you see God doing miracles in your life? Or another way to put it, can your life be explained without miracles? If so, you're probably not stepping out enough in faith and saying, God, use me. Our life should not be explain, explainable other than through miracles. I have things that have happened in my life that I just, there is no other way. And it's, you know, God tells us, put a memorial up. Like they put the rocks up. Remember the 12 stones when it came to Jordan? Put memorials up on my, somebody told me one time, put them up on my own uh, ledge or, or, or at the fireplace, you know, so that when people come in, they'll say, or my children growing up, Dad, what's that stone? Let me tell you what God did this day, right? That's what those are really all about. Those are the reasons that we want to put those up so that we remember the miracles God did in our life. Um, Matthew 6, Cindy, if you'll read Matthew 6, 51 and 52. Do you still have, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark 6, 51 and 52. This is what happens. The disciples finish this whole thing. Jesus immediately knows they're still tired. He tells them, get back in the boat. I'm going to send you away. Some other things go on after this, but he gets them away. He then deals with the crowd and dismisses them. That's how the story ends on the feeding. But here's what happens. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's praying to God, to his father, saying, thank you, Lord, for what you did. And he looks out over the Sea of Galilee. And he sees his disciples really struggling, right, in the boat. So what's he do? He goes, I could have just popped in on him. But, but he says, I thought I might scare him. So I thought I'd just walk out to him. You know, the water to him is the same as ground. What does it matter to him, you know? They were still scared to death. So he gets in the boat. What's it 51 and 52 say? Their hearts were what? Where have we heard that before? Pharaoh. I used to read Pharaoh and think, man, if I have a hardened heart, that's really really bad, right? But I'm reading this, and he's saying the disciples have a hardened heart. It's not that it's good, but it's not Pharaoh-like. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, how does this, what is a hardened heart? Maybe I'm thinking wrong about what a hardened heart is. What is a hardened heart? What do you think? How would you describe a hardened heart? What's that? Turned away from Jesus, so we're thinking wrong. We're thinking this direction, it's much like Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you're looking this way, but I tell you the truth, that's repent. Change the direction of our thinking, right? And then our actions will follow. 
That's a good. That's exactly. What else? What's that? Not open to miracles. Why not? Because they had not yet experienced them. They hadn't seen them. They just, their paradigm was really messed up, right? So I write down here, hardening of the heart is a dulling of the mind through wrong expectations due to previous experience. That's like what she said with the, with the, uh, the not believing the miracles. Wrong thinking. That's like she said in the back. I'm thinking this way, God says, or Jesus says, think this way. Uh, Closed-mindedness, oh, surely, you know, sure. We try to explain today, well, there were probably more loaves there than we realized. Probably people got them out of their pockets while they were passing stuff around, right? Yeah, yeah, that's probably how they were all fed. That's a big deal out of this for an application. That was not an application back then for the people it was an application for the disciples in the fact that they didn't reckon, they didn't know what they didn't know yet. They still had hardened hearts. And it's not until we get to chapter 8 that Peter has enough illumination from the Holy Spirit to say, Thou art the Christ. See, that's what's going on. They're trying to get them to that point. So here's the question. Why did Jesus do this miracle? Why this miracle? Why feed the people? Why not just send them away and say, go to the local McDonald's, get something to eat, and we'll go at it again tomorrow. Why did he decide to do this? The disciples were really tired. He knew that. He'd send them away to get away from the people. Why would he feed it? Why would he do it? That's an interesting question that I hadn't thought about before when I got into this study. Jesus realized he had an opportunity to do something. Remember that he did not come to minister to Gentiles. He came to save everybody, and he worked with some Gentiles. But remember what he says to the woman up in Tyre that occurs in, like, Mark 7? He says to when she says, will you come heal my daughter? He goes, the food is for the children, not for the dogs, right? That's a pretty insulting thing, right? He goes, my ministry is to the Israel nation, and that's who I'm working with. He saw an opportunity here to do something. What he was saying, they would have reflected back, and they would have thought, wow, what just happened to us tonight? We just saw a whole bunch of food that did not exist before. What might that remind them of in their own history? The manna. They would go, Oh, do you remember when Grandpa used to tell us the stories about his grandfather and his grandfather and his grandfather and how they were out in the middle of the desert just like we were, no McDonald's around, and they complained to Moses, and Moses says, Ah, you don't need to complain. Quit your worrying. Don't be anxious about anything. God's going to do something spectacular. Tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to find... Manna. By the way, what's manna mean? Best we know. What is it? They looked at it and they go, what is it, right? And it was this kind of flat, and, and they didn't eat it as is. They would crush it and then make breads out of it. So it was not something that just ate directly. But they, this whole manna thing, they would have recognized Jesus was hoping that when they reflected back that they would see, oh, the exodus that we've learned about with the manna and the bread that God brought is very similar to what Jesus just did. 
and the bread that he brought to us. And then later in John, as they're again, this is all, I'm thinking post-resurrection because they didn't figure this stuff out until Jesus was gone. But in John, I am the bread of life. And they would have gone, see the connection? He's trying to help them make these connections up. And he's trying to show them that again, you don't need to get better. You need to go from being dead to alive. Your problem is way deeper than you realize. I am here as your exodus, just as God got you out of Egypt. I am here as your exodus from death to life. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say to you, he who hears my voice and believes him who sent me, giving of the gospel, the believing of that gospel, he who hears my voice and believes him who sent me, what does it say? Has eternal life. Boom. He has passed over from death to life. It's that same connection. Jesus is trying to say to them, this bread is important. What's interesting is in the next chapter of Mark, he does it again, the feeding of the 4,000. We don't study it as much. We think there's argument on this, but it certainly was over on the eastern side. We think it was mostly to Gentiles for that particular feeding. Maybe a mixed group, but at least Gentiles would have seen the same thing. They would not have gotten the connection but later, post-resurrection, as Peter's telling the stories, they'd go, tell me more. What was this Exodus story that you guys know, you know, that you guys keep talking about? Do you see the connections here? That's what he's trying to do. So I ask you the question. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. That's at John 6, 35. I give you on your notes. I am your Exodus from death to the promised land, to the source of life, to God. Don't let your hearts be hardened through wrong expectations due to previous experience, wrong thinking, yada, yada, yada. So what does God want from me out of a story like this? Jesus in Matthew 11, uh, 11 and in Luke 7, 28, this is not on your notes. You'd have to write this down if you want this. <clears throat> Today, uh, he says in both those uh, verses, 11, 11 and, and, and Luke 7, 28, Today I tell you, among those born of women, he's talking about John the Baptist, there is none uh, risen any greater than John the Baptist. There is none. So he's saying to his disciples, I tell you the truth, there is nobody greater than John the Baptist. Nobody. And then he goes on to say, interesting, but whoever's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist, right? And you go, well, what's that all about? Well, first off, you got to think about what does John the Baptist's ministry look like? What does his ministry look like? John never owned a car, never owned a donkey, never had any clothes, wore camel hair, right? Where did he live? What did he eat, right? Never had a good meal, as we consider a good meal. Preached to a bunch of people. A lot of people liked him. A lot of people followed him. And then all of a sudden, on the whim of some teenage girl at her birthday party, he's beheaded. If you were asked, was John successful in his ministry, how would you answer that? Well, the world would say, 
that guy wasn't successful at all. You know, that's not, by the way, that's probably not a plan that Marty has taken after. Marty's probably not thinking, I'd like to follow in John the Baptist's steps, right? I don't think many ministers would say that's the way I want to go. And yet Jesus says, there's nobody greater than that. And then he says, the least of the kingdom will even be greater than that. Why would they say that? I think it comes down to something that Terry Fakes quoted, and I have written it down in my mind because it's so powerful. Uh, Mother Teresa, I don't know a lot about the rest of Mother Teresa, but this one piece she said is extremely biblical. She said when she was asked at the end of her ministry life, she was asked, why don't you go out? You're so popular and so well-known. You could go out. You're trying to, to minister to all these poor people that are dying. Why don't you go out and speak, and you can make thousands of dollars and bring that money back in and help all these people? Does that sound like a pretty good plan? Does it sound like a plan that the world might go after? Right? It, does, it makes some sense. Be a good steward, Mother Teresa. And she responded with something that haunts me when I think about it myself. She said, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And her faithfulness was in the ministry she'd been called to. Was John the Baptist faithful? He was very faithful to what he was called to. He never took his eye off the ball. He got confused at the end because he's thinking from the world's viewpoint, I'm not very successful. But Jesus later says, you were very faithful. And the least of the kingdom, like the woman with a little bit of oil left, remember that? She says, when she was asked if you'd share that, and eventually that oil never ran out while there was a famine going on. Do you remember that story? How much did she have? Uh, just a little bit. But she was faithful with what she had. Whatever you have, whether you think it's a lot or whether you think it's just a little, how could God use that? Be faithful as a steward. Take what God has presented in front of you and say to yourself, today, Lord, I am going to be faithful in what you've given me. Faithful as a steward to try to expand the kingdom. Whatever that looks like. I'm not going to look at somebody else. I'm not going to compare over here. I'm only going to look and say, God, you've given me this and I'm going to be faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the, for the miracles that you do in our own lives and the miracles you put into Mark to really help us see what you're all about. Um, help us to take to heart the, the, the really deep meanings here of, of what, is, you know, what were you trying to do here. Help us to see that you're our exodus, that you are our exodus from death to life. That because we put our faith in you, we can now stand secure and we can go out and be your disciples and your witness to the world and be strong and be faithful and help us, Lord, whatever you have entrusted to us to just simply be faithful. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.